0: So what do you you like on your dogs? All of it. All of it? Sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Man, everything. This
1: is a scene right here, man. (laughs) (laughs) Is that George Foreman right there? No. Somebody more formidable than George Foreman? It's uh. It's a Joe Frazier grill?
0: No, it's uh, Art Cuisin.
1: (laughs) He was a great cantor, I think, back in the day. Yeah, he was. He came up in the Bronx, I think. I think the thing about that record is that voodoo record is that everyone was like, oh man, it's a classic record you're on. It's a classic record. I'm just like, hey, if I'm still alive, it's not a classic record, you know, which is kind of curmudgeonly. It's not true. But people really seem to like it. I'm gonna have to go back and give it another another listen. You know, I remember when it came out, he was fantastic. He's a great musician. The tunes were great. Yeah,
0: I mean the compositions were mm-hmm. great. I mean, he was a great singer. The charts were great. You were fabulous. You oh, were thanks, fabulous, man. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I did my best. It's I mean, just those like guys- one of those.
0: It was one of those, you know, perfect records.
1: Oh wow. Well, you know, I was happy to be a part of it, and those guys were so locked in. I mean, they were so totally locked in. Uh, Amir, the drummer, and Deangelo—they had their concept like. So was it down?
0: So was it cut live?
1: Yeah. Well, w- what we did was live. We just played trio, and. Um, do you mind if I turn that fan off for the the sound? If this this guy right here. Um. But yeah, I cut it. We just played the three of us. You know. And and, um, D'Angelo was like, it's been a while. I mean, this is like 16, 17 years ago, something like that. But I remember him being very specific about, hey, you know, this is how we want this to sound. We want the, you know, we want to play super behind the beat, except the drummer will be on the beat, you know? Well, he had,
0: from my vantage point, that was it for him.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think he had a lot of problems after. I mean, I didn't stay, I tried to stay in touch with him.
0: He had problems. Yeah. I said, yeah. see that in print. Yeah, yeah. And then, if there was another record, it wasn't near that record. Yeah,
1: I don't think there was another record. I'm not sure. But he, um, he was a great. I thought he was a great musician, and he and Amir. Uh, he, he what they were playing was what became their thing you know that kind of whatever you want to call neo soul which was basically coming out of the Motown thing and I'm really out of Marvin Gaye a lot um, and a lot out of Jimi Hendrix as well but they'd have that beat that and you are supposed to play like like, so far behind the beat that it felt like you were just about to, like, have a heart attack, you know, like, the time, you know, and, and I was like, man, I'm from the Bay Area, you know, it's it's a feat for people from the Bay Area that to not speed the tune up, like, by, by two or three clicks by the time it's done, it's like, you know, that Tower of Power kind of thing, and, uh, but, man, they schooled me pretty no, well No, which was laid that. back? Oh, super laid back, and you know what they actually did? Where
0: did they cut it, in LA?
1: No, Electric Ladyland, that's where really? we Really? Yeah, yeah. And um, he, uh, I remember he was, um, you know, because I had made whatever you want to call quote unquote jazz records up to that point, and I had made a lot of pop records, whatever, but every situation I was in was so turbocharged in terms of like... Oh, you know, the time, like the, the, the time limits that we have on this. We have to get as much done as possible because the studio time is so expensive. Why are you even talking to me right now? We should be playing music. Why is this guy, This is, fire that assistant because he was talking and wasting their time, blah, blah, that kind of environment, you know. And uh, so, you know, you're out there trying to churn out a record a day. And I went in there and they called me because they had seen me on some show. And uh, we were sitting in this lounge just watching TV, like, an hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by. And I finally said, you know, because I kind of got to know, I was like, well, are are we going to play? Or are we waiting for instruments? Or? And they're like, no, no, the instruments are here. Everything's set up and ready to go. I was like, well, should, you know, we should play? I was getting nervous and a little uptight, you know, about their bill. Not even, It wasn't even my thing. I was like projecting my anxiety onto them, you know. And uh, they're like, man, you're a harsh taskmaster. <laughs> And we went in there and just played, Right, and back. right went right through there and just played and I think it was maybe a couple takes of each song, you know, after they, he, one song was his song that he taught to me and then we wrote, I think, two or three other tunes together um, from that. But, you know, in the, in the same old music industry kind of thing, I saw very little money from it at the end of the day. There's not much going on there, you know, unfortunately. Nah. What are you going to, what are you going to do?
0: Well because of Like a Rolling Stone, I got to play on a lot of people's records.
1: It led to a lot of other stuff.
0: And I and I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well I, you know, I, I like the <clears throat> the, most, the most bizarre was <clears throat> before Hey, Al, is it okay if we turn the music down a yeah. little bit, just because
1: he's my man, uh, Adam has to do all this stuff. He's like, couldn't you have asked him to turn the music down? So you were talking about like, being on that Rolling Stone, like a Rolling Stone, the
0: No, no, so, so after like a Rolling Stone, I got like a lot of calls. Mm. And, you know, mostly in New York because that's where I lived. Yeah. And I was 21. Mm. And so I got this one call for Carly Simon before she was famous. She had a gig with her sister, Lucy. Mm. They were called the Simon Sisters. So they called me for that gig. <clears throat> so, like, I had a polka dot shirt on. <laughs> and a clip-on earring in my ear.
1: Not even a pierced ear, a clip-on earring.
0: <laughs> and uh, and I walked into the session and I, and I looked around and there was like guys from uh, Basie's band. Mm. It was a big date. And I went, oh, fuck me. Terror. <laughs> so I went over and I looked at the charts and it was like chicken feet was not good <laughs> so Gary McFarland was the arranger mm. I didn't know him but I, I certainly had his records so I went over and uh, introduced myself and I said'm uh, I'm, I'm a little worried about these charts he <coughs> and he said uh, You know what? He said, take those charts and open the organ bench and put them inside and sit on them. He said, they hired you because you do what you do. Mm. So do what you do and Mm -hmm. everyone will be happy. Yeah. I said, thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Well, he's not only was he a great... Arranger, but he also knew how to put people at ease to get the best out of them, as opposed well, to like was, a vibe vibing you out for not being
0: the world's best reader. But I mean, right I, but I was like, I was 21. Yeah. And, and you know, like, there were guys, Johnny Hodges and oh people God. like that yeah, in the yeah, fucking yeah. room.
1: Terrifying, yeah. Uh, whoa. Tell me about, you told me one time about, because you started out as a guitar player and a songwriter, not an organist. And you were telling me about because you played on a couple of these kind of um, more rock hits at the time with with that vernacular guitar playing that people wanted to hire you because of that.
0: No, they hired me because I was young. I came out of my first pro gig was I was in a band that had the number one record in the country,
1: which uh, who, was? We, who
0: wears short shorts. Oh, that was it, right? <laughs> and and so that was that was my f- first pro gig, but it was a serious gig. So I got to play like unbelievable gigs, From like you that. know Al- Alan Freed shows and mm. Dick Clark shows and stuff like that. Uh, and and so everybody. That was unbelievable. Was on the bill, Mm -hmm. so I just sit in the fucking wings and and watch like the greatest talent that was alive.
1: Like who who was on some of those? Jackie Wilson. Wow.
0: uh, Larry Williams, Little Richard, yeah, uh, uh, James Brown. So this
1: is early '60s. I'm imagining. '58. '58. Wow. I
0: started in '58. Wow. And before that. I just played in a kid band in my neighborhood.
1: In Queens, right? Yeah.
0: And I met a guy uh, at summer camp and he, he played guitar. And I was like fooling around uh, with a ukulele. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said, why don't you just get a guitar? He said, it's, it, the chords you're playing are going to be the same. It's just two more strings," he said. "You already know a few chords, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so I had to uh, I just had to figure out how to get a guitar. It costs money. Mm-hmm. And I did have no money, so I got a cheap guitar, and then uh, I had a, a, a local band that I was in. It was originally like accordion, guitar, uh, alto and drums mm. and we just played <laughs> that's old school that's an old, old
1: school Italian.
0: And uh, and we just played top 40 mm. but it was good because it, it uh, got my ears going.
1: Mm-hmm. you learn songs, you learn harmony.
0: No, it was really good. And the things that we got excited about you know are like, it's pretty funny. I, mean, I remember them all.
1: Mm. Like what? What were some of the songs?
0: Well, there was a uh an instrumental out at the time called "Weekend" by a group called the Kingsmen. And wait, uh, the Kingsmen were they the Louis Louie? the guys? It could be, but but oh, uh, okay. but this was another one. Okay. And me and my friend. Who was the accordion player? But he, he switched to bass because he was embarrassed by the accordion. As uh-huh. well, he should have been <laughs> at that point. Playing yeah, playing accordion, go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> so then he he started playing uh, uh, Fender bass, which was great. And we had <clears throat> we had this thing going. I'll get a Strat before you will. Uh huh. We both wanted Stratocasters. And he did get one before me. It cost a hundred and seventy-four fifty
1: back then. <laughs> yeah, you can multiply that by like a hundred now, I think.
0: It must have been like a, a African American person seeing a Cadillac for the first time. Hmm. When I saw a Stratocaster, I had to have that. Mm, mm. It was the coolest thing I ever saw in my. It still is cool. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I remember when I was a kid, I couldn't. My mom repaired guitars, and I couldn't afford a Strat. Couldn't afford it. I had to get a copy, Memphis, a Memphis Stratocaster. And to this day, I've never owned a Fender Stratocaster. Wow. I've never owned. I I, I had a Fender Telecaster of my father's for a bit. It was from the '70s, but uh, I sold it so that he could repair his roof. You know. And uh, but that's it. I've never owned anything but uh, guitars. Someone had made for me, like I play, or something like a, a copy of something. You know,
0: I had every kind of guitar cause I used to trade them in every year at Manny's. Really? Yeah. Wow.
1: So you'd go up there with a, a Strat, and if, if something new came out, you'd
0: but that, get another. Wow. Get another guitar. It's before guitars were valuable.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Before, there was a fetish around the vintageness, and a lot of the reason... Well, they were all new. Yeah. A lot of the reason for that fetish was be- because of people like you, because, you know, people of your generation that really changed the music culturally, you know, they see a guy like Jimi Hendrix with the Stratocaster, or Roy Buchanan with a Telecaster, uh, you know, that, that changes the whole the whole thing, you know, then it becomes iconic. You know, it was pre-iconic.
0: Well, I mean, some guy in the neighborhood had one. You know, and I, I saw him playing at some uh, church. Um, you know, like a dance at a church. Yeah. And yeah. I went, oh my God, look at that. Wow.
1: Yeah, Leo Fender was a genius. I mean, still to this day, he... He definitely not oh, no, only, di- no doubt yeah, about it. Not only the design of the guitar and the but, bass and the bass, the, the electric bass. Uh, you know what? But, you know why did they choose thirty four inches? Why did they chose? You know that he he had very specific reasons for all these things, and and uh, it was so spaceship though. It was at that time. It must have been the height of modernism. You know, for you to to see something
0: like that. Now people take it for granted. I still don't take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah, as I got older, <clears throat> I I switched to uh, Jazzmaster. Oh, okay. Because uh, um, i mostly concentrated on playing rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. It was more interesting to me, and also there were like a million guys that could play a lead. Nobody could play rhythm.
1: Mm. Well, I mean yeah. the way I wanted it. The way, yeah. But, I mean, listen, if you came up listening to real rock and roll, real R&B and gospel music, that's where the rhythm guitar lived and in rock and roll, unless it's something like ACDC or maybe ZZ Top, you're not going to hear good rhythm playing it just doesn't exist
0: No, no, I mean I got all my playing from the uh, 60's and 70's soul records Mm. rhythm Mm playing Curtis Mayfield Oh
1: man, yeah, I mean that's super bad, you know
0: so i still can do that i lost my lead jobs but i recorded a lot of it Mm. one of the things i I decided that i'm not going to make any more albums Mm. the last two albums i made are the best ones i ever made and and i started another one and in the middle of it i said this isn't as good as the last two. (laughs) I said, you know, God is telling me something. So what I did decide to do, because I recorded so much stuff in my life, as an artist, I had a lot of unreleased stuff Mm. throughout my whole career. Tons of it. So I'm going to put out a box set of four CDs of all unreleased stuff from my whole career and it's it, and it may be like the best thing I ever oh that's out. a cool idea yeah. there's a lot of you know the early stuff is humorous you know and yeah. then and then little by little I learn what I'm doing mm. Mm. and it's a it's a really nice I want to try and do it chronologically yeah but it's going to take me two years to do that for I sort, sure. of, I sort of started a little bit
1: oh that's good I'd be into hearing that I took
0: my DAT tapes and I transferred them to digital mm. that was the start but there is great stuff and there was a time when I was really I was playing really good lead guitar mm. and uh What happened was my guitar player, Jimmy Vivino.
1: I know Jimmy, sure, yeah. He's who great. doesn't know Jimmy? Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy.
0: But I mean but I found him early on and and he was in my band for well, he still is in some ways. we always have a band together. But we had a we had a band for like twenty five years. And he was my M D. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched him come up from nothing to everything. I think he's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, he's a great he's a great player, and he's very good at that universe in which he he rolls. You know, um, sorry. Okay, I don't need to get that. Yeah, he's he's very. Um, savvy I had this I had this
0: thing with. Uh, when I played with Mike Bloomfield that was very unique, which was we never discussed the music
1: mm-hmm.
0: we never ever talked about the music I mean, that we were playing mm-hmm. we knew how to accompany each other and we knew how to stay out of each other's way and we knew how to comp behind each other and like that
1: you knew, because oh, you, you were living it at that time too, you know. Well, it's
0: just, well, I mean, we listened to the, probably the same people mm-hmm. and and we enjoyed, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and I certainly hadn't played with anybody as good as him, and I don't know if he had played with anybody as, you know, that mm-hmm. did what I did. So when we played together, it was very special to me. Mm-hmm. It was very special because. I didn't have to say anything to him, ever. And he didn't say anything to me. We just got up there and played, and we loved it, and we had a great time. Uh,
1: That's the way it should be, you know.
0: And uh, and when he died, I thought I was so lucky that I got to do that with somebody. Mm. And then I realized that it was the same thing with Vivino. So so I, I got that twice in my life, mm. which I think is pretty fabulous. That's awesome.
1: You know, I remember what you were telling us about New York and that time where you it went from... You know, you had this recording industry there, and songwriting industry, and you had all these things that were, were uh, different modules which, which would come together to make a record and then you guys came and it was a cultural thing and maybe you weren't as studied as musicians or songwriters or whatever but you had something from all of those worlds and you were telling us at one point how you would go in to do these gigs as a guitar player because you were young and because you had that cultural insight and you'd be on uh, sessions with guys like King Curtis and and, uh, you know and I, will you talk about that for a second if you...
0: Well, when I first started playing Sessions, it, it came out of A being in that band, mm-hmm. the Royal Teens they were called. The Royal Teens, right, yeah. So it came out of that, but it also came out of the fact that I was um, doing a lot of work as a songwriter.
1: Well, I remember that This Diamond Ring.
0: But that was that was sort of a, a culmination. There were years before that happened. Mm. I would say from 1960 to 1965, I was writing songs and and playing sessions. And the reason I was playing sessions is the first guy that hired me, uh, he was a producer, his name was Ray Ellis. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, I want you to play guitar on a date for me said, do you read? I said, I do read. He said, uh, I'm not hiring you because you're good. (laughs) He said, I'm hiring you because all the other guys are 40 and 50 years old. And you're 16. Mm. So if you play what you play, it's going to be real. And those other guys, you know... They can't do that. They can do it, but not as authentically as you can. But, but I don't think you're good. <laughs> but it's That's good. Awesome. That, but it's good that I know you because I know that you can do what I'll hire you for. So I said, okay. And uh, and so he hired me like a few times, and then other people started hiring me, and. And I wouldn't say I got a lot of work, but I got, you know, like maybe uh, uh, three sessions a week, which was uh, great.
1: That's there was a lot more opportunity then for that at that time. Where,
0: and and like the difference between how I played on my first session with him and my fifth session was enormous.
1: I can, yeah, I'm sure the learning curve was was massive.
0: Yeah, but and the guys. The old guys knew me because um, I would hire them for uh, songwriting demos. So they all knew me. and they were very nice to me mm. when I was playing on them you know because I was a, an employer. right of course of course. yeah so what if I was 16 <laughs> So so they're very nice to me. One guy busted my balls. Every time I was on a session with him, and he was on practically every session. It was King Curtis. <laughs> he hated me. Why? Why did he hate you? Because I was white, and I was, and I wasn't talented. Got you. Compared
1: to like he was, he was thinking about Cornell Dupree or.
0: Well, the other guys that were in the room.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He didn't like that I was in the room.
1: Right. I mean, but if you think about it from his. Viewpoint, I guess you could kind of see.
0: But these guys, he's these from. other guys, the white and black guitar players in the room, were always nice to me mm-hmm. because they knew they weren't threatened. Right, right. Far from it. Wow. And and the only thing that was happening is I was learning from them. That was happening. Guys were unbelievable.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Do you remember the names of some of the guys that were?
0: Uh, It's tough.
1: I'm sure I know some of the playing.
0: Charlie Macy.
1: I don't know him. You got me there.
0: Everett Barksdale.
1: Oh, of course, I know him. Yeah.
0: He played one thing that was incredible. Uh, uh, There's this white guy who had uh, really uh, uh, terrible records. His name was Paul Evans. I never heard of him he had a, a big hit called Seven Little Girls Sitting in the Back Seat." oh my god <laughs> and and uh, and some other stuff but he cut a version of a Midnight Special oh boy and he was fabulous he sang it fantastic it was like a, a, you know yeah. an accent of blues uh huh and and I always wanted to know who played guitar the guitar playing was great too So I I was on a board with him one night, you know, online. Mm -hmm. And I said, hi, you know, blah, 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 blah. I said, do you remember the name of who played guitar on Midnight Special? your record of Midnight Special. He said, yeah, it was Everett Barksdale. And I went, that's unbelievable. It doesn't sound like Everett Barksdale. He really like, the beginning is uh, uh, no tempo. Mm-hmm. So he goes. Well, you wake up in the morning, boys, and he plays a little lick. He says, "You hear the ding dong ring?" And he plays a uh-huh. lick. It was like that. They were trading yeah, yeah, back and yeah. forth, and that playing on that record, I'll, I'll play it for you, was incredible and not anything like I ever heard Everett Barksdale wow. play.
1: Yeah, I want to hear it because I know him from some jazz records and some other stuff.
0: But he was he was he was one of those guys. He was on every day. Mm. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the uh, well, Vinnie Bell mm-hmm. was uh, my hero. He was also very nice to me.
1: I wonder if you ever ran into my the drummer I played with, was Scott Amendola. His grandfather's named Tony Gattuso, No. and he was a guitar. He may have been just older enough that he was no longer on that scene and was just writing jingles at that point. But he. I know in the '40s and '50s he just could not stop working. There was too much work to to do, and Bernard Purdy told me a similar thing, where it was just like you could not stop working. There was so much work, just in the studios alone, that you you would just be busy from, you know, sunup to sundown, New York and LA, if, if you want to. And there LA
0: were well. there were uh, uh, some producers that, as a songwriter. Uh, took me under their wings. Uh, the most prominent one in my life was Jerry Ragavoy.
1: Of course, and he's the one who produced that great... Um, oh my, the Howard Tate records. Um, he did better than that. He, well, he did better than that, but that record for people my age is like... That's a that's a pretty. That's where I learned his name from. At least was he a Philly guy or he, he was a New he was Originally a Philly, a Philly guy. Yeah. So talk talk a little bit about. I'm sure that uh, Adam Dorn, his dad Joel Dorn, knew. I knew, I knew. I knew you,
0: his dad. You knew his
1: dad, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> what a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. And also nice. uh, a friend of mine worked for Joel. His name was John Kruth. He's a writer. Okay. But he worked for uh, uh, Joel.
1: You hear that, Dorn? you know this guy? I'm sure you I'm do. I'm sure he does. Yeah.
0: <laughs> John's still around. So, where, where were we? Jerry Ragavoy. Now, I used to go to some of these offices and like, ask a lot of questions. You know, can you tell me how you did this and like that, and they'd throw me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lever and it threw me out more times than anybody <laughs> and uh, Jerry didn't throw me out. Mm. I was amazed and he, and he took me in, he recorded some of my songs, he, uh, uh, he let me come to sessions and watch and it was unbelievable what I learned mm. from him.
1: Like what at that at that time? What would you what would you well, say? The ses- out? His
0: sessions were unbelievable. They were unbelievable. The most famous is uh, he he had a uh, he had a production deal with Warner Brothers. Reprise, Warner Brothers mm. Reprise. So they had a, a Sinatra session for a, a Thursday night, 70-piece band. Woof. And Sinatra canceled on Monday. So they had to pay everybody. I think it's a week. Wow. So the guys at Warner Brothers asked the producers, Does anybody want to use this date?" and Sinatra was paying for it. They didn't have to pay for a 70-piece band, so <laughs> Boy said, I'll take that. <laughs> <clears throat> because he was an arranger as well. All so, those guys were back then, such So he, st- he stayed up for two or three days to write this chart with this other arranger, Gary Sherman, and and they only wrote the one chart. And then they had to get it to the copyist on time, and and uh, it was uh, Lorraine Ellison was the artist, and she's a former gospel singer. Mm. Jerry and I used to go see her when she was a gospel singer. There used to be. I'm going to go off track, but, but but put me back on. <laughs> okay, the, the, in. Around 1962, 63, there was a gospel nightclub in New York.
1: A nightclub?
0: They only had gospel music. It, what was, trip. it was called the Sweet Chariot. And they only had gospel acts. And uh, the waitresses were dressed as angels. And everyone who came in was handed a tambourine. Wow. But I mean, but they had, you know, soul food on the menu. That's what was on the menu. And uh, alcohol was being served and what What and trip. And, uh, and the mob, it was the mob. Owned oh, it. gotcha. Owned oh, it. Gosh. I think maybe the same people that owned Bunpland. <laughs> okay. It wasn't far from there. Mm. And this became my hang. I went there every night. Mm. It was unbelievable. And you they see had Shirley
1: it. Caesar there?
0: I didn't see how oh. there. They they, they had uh, mostly lesser known acts, mm-hmm. but that didn't mean they weren't good. Of course. And the house band was uh, 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 an organ guy that played feet mm. and a drummer. Mm.
1: That's it. That was the I'm house sold. band. I'm sold. I'm sold. Right off the bat. <clears throat>
0: that was wow. the house band. Wow. Not but, even a guitar
1: player, just that.
0: Yeah. God. And the wow. organ player's name was uh, uh, Bobby Banks also known as the Reverend Bobby Banks. Mm. And he was fantastic. And i just sit at the bar every night and go, I'm in heaven. Mm. This is the greatest thing. And it was mostly white people, tourists in the audience. Wow. And these people were playing great fucking music. So Lorraine used to play there with her sisters from Philly. She was from Philly. I guess that's how Jerry knew her. Mm -hmm and they were called the Golden Chords and so my other friend Tom Wilson who's a producer yeah I know that name of course uh, he signed a deal with the Sweet Chariot to record live albums there and he recorded a bunch of people there and, but the only thing that came out was a, a, like an introductory album where they had you know two tracks by a bunch sure, of acts, sure. Sure. And I and I bought that, and I have and Lorraine's on that. I'm gonna
1: have to find that still, just with the it's organist and the drummer.
0: To, tough to find.
1: Yeah, I'll search. I'll search it out. We'll be emailing each other until I find it.
0: No, but I have I have I have Lorraine's tracks. On that.
1: So you also told me about going to oh, so let me finish oh, you yeah. about the oh, okay. symphonic session. Yeah.
0: So. So Jerry goes in there, and uh, uh, Phil Ramon was the engineer at the time. And uh, I th- think I think it was at 30th Street Columbia Studios. Mm, mm. And seventy musicians. Yeah, incredible. I'd never seen anything like that myself. Incredible. And uh, so Jerry Jerry ran it down and uh, got Did, all the mistakes. worse, obviously. Got yeah. all the mistakes straightened out, and uh, uh, and while he was doing that, Ramon got a uh, a, a, a good stereo mix mm. for the control room, mm. and uh, so take one. Uh, Lorraine fucked up the second line band played perfectly mm. so Jerry said well let's just punch Lorraine in said no reason to put them through that and so they punched Lorraine in and they were done wow it took them a half hour to run it down and make fix all the mistakes and then 15 minutes to cut it
1: wow wow
0: and then he thanked everybody and they went home yeah and and he said to Phil Ramon he said make a copy of that mix that you're running he said it's excellent he says that's the mix that's great and he said I, I want that I want to be able to have that I'll wait for that mm-hmm mm-hmm Make me a, a a fifteen inch copy. Sure, sure. So, uh, so I I have to play that. It's un- no, I, don't I hear mean it for because sure. you know what it is now.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I want to hear it for so sure. So it's so good. Yeah.
0: But, but Jerry used mostly. Well, here he had to use Sinatra's mm-hmm. players, but he used mostly uh, uh, Purdy. Mm. Chuck Rainey, uh, Paul Griffin and Eric Gale. Yep. that, was, that yep. was his rhythm section. <laughs> and, he used, and, and if Paul Griffin couldn't make it, if any of them couldn't make it, he wouldn't do the date. Wow. Well, that was a sound. I mean, and so I inherited that from him. So you I, had
1: your guys that you've worked with. I use them. You use them
0: because they were unbelievable. And so later on, like in 1970, uh, 69 actually, I I scored a film, it was uh, uh, the director uh, Hal Ashby's first film. What was the film? It's called The Landlord. The Landlord. And it takes place in New York, that's why he hired me. And I never scored a film and I remember he brought me up for a meeting with the producer the producer of the film was Norman Jewison Mm. who was a famous director of course yeah and uh, and he said uh, have you ever scored a film before I said no he said do you know how to score a film I said (laughs) yeah I studied the Schillinger system in uh, college and he went (laughs) and I'm sitting facing him at his desk and Hal Aspie is sitting next to me and he kicks me and I look at him and he goes (laughs) don't worry about this I'll take care of this wow he was uh, Aspie was Jewison's editor prior to this and he won an Academy Award uh Ashby did for uh, editing uh, In the Heat of the Night. Mm. And so now Jewison was going to let him make his own film. This was his first film. It was the, <clears throat> the worst film that he made. <laughs> and it wasn't a bad movie. It was, it was actually quite good. So he called me, Hal Ashby, in New York, and he said, uh, I, I want you to score a film on I'm doing my first film and I'd like you to do the score. It's a New York film. Can you fly out here and and look at the film with me to see if you like it? If you like it, I would like you to do the score. Wow. I said, this is so great. So I went out there. I saw the film. It was good. I said, yeah, let's go. He said, he said can you do me a favor? Can you stay an extra day? He said, because I'm trying to decide between you and another person. Uh-huh. I said, okay. So, so I, I had some friends that were there. One guy I was very friendly with was this producer named uh, Denny Cordell. He's not alive anymore. Mm. He, he discovered uh, uh, Joe Cocker mm. and uh, Leon Russell and uh, Tom Petty. A lot of people. Mm. So, so Denny and I were very good friends. He was English. So I called him, I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm, uh, we're doing uh, Leon's first album. He said, we're in the middle of that. He said, come over. So I went over there and and uh, I knew everybody. As a matter of fact, they were, they were recording George Harrison's song, Beware of Darkness. Do you know that song? I don't, I don't. It's really good. And and they had Booker T, he was playing organ on it. Oh, that's awesome. So I got to see that, that was good.
1: I did a gig with him recently, someone set up a gig at a, kind of a, it was called the Sold Out Festival, S-O-L-U, uh, S-O-U-L apostrophe D, Out Festival, and they put me together with Booker and a, a local drummer, uh, this guy uh, Carlton, he was good, and, um, <clears throat> you know, I think Booker T does a lot of these gigs now where... He and his wife are such cool people. They're really like just—I like, don't know his wife. Really cool lady, um, and um, real smart. Real, just like really on on it, you know. And I think he does because of you know the way that the cookie. He does a lot of these gigs where I mean, hey, everybody knows his songbook. I mean, if you're a musician, you know all those songs, you know. And um, <clears throat> I think he does lots and lots of gigs with musicians that are not really that great you know um and so he came to this thing and we had a sound check and and um and you know he's an idol for me you know what i mean and uh you know and and, uh he uh was like count off these tunes he just kind of looked a little drugged like all right here we go again you know and then the drummer and i turned out we really could play you know and he was like he got all happy and started playing the, the music, you know. But it was cool because he he just, you know, because I was like, you know, I wouldn't st- let him. I was like, you have to tell How me about stats. Just just like a year ago, I but, think. But but
0: wasn't he like promoting his current album? Um, I, I, not
1: that I remember. I don't think I don't remember that. Um There may have been, but I was probably just so busy dealing with stuff that I I didn't didn't notice it. I mean, we just played. I can't remember. I mean, we played a lot of those MG songs and some Stack stuff and a few other songs. You know, he's got like a show. You know, so we kind of did that. But you know, I I just had asked him all about the Stax stuff and the experience and all of the, you know, because I of course I listened to those records a million times.
0: See, know? I was the opposite. <clears throat> when I, when I lived in Nashville, I became very good friends with Steve Cropper. Oh, okay. And Doc Dunn. Mm and and so Steve, Steve would call me for gigs that's awesome and then and um, and so at one point I, I wrote a song about Stax Vault and and I, I didn't I did a demo of it where I played all the instruments and I just had that Mm. and then when they had the 50th anniversary of stacks I said now is the time to put this out I said but I'd really like to cut it with the MGs and and it mentions each guy's name in the Uh song of the MGs so so I called up Steve and by this time I was living here
1: Mm.
0: So I said, uh, but I wanted to do it in New York, if I could. I said, are you guys going to be in New York? He said, as a matter of fact, we're going to be there in a month. I said, well, I would really like um, you and Booker and Doc, and and maybe uh, Anton Fig mm-hmm. because he played with them. He said, I said, I'll send you the demo. How's that? I said, because it's pretty. You know, doesn't leave much to the imagination. Mm-hmm. So I sent him a demo, and he called me back and said, "This is great." He said, "Duck and I really got a kick out of it." Oh, that's. He cool. said Booker won't do it. Oh, really? He said, "He said I'll ask him, but I'll tell you he won't do it." He said, "That's okay. I got another organ player that'll do it. It's just me." Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and like you know, I learned how to play from. Booker T sure sure yeah you know so no problem there yeah so I cut it in New York with me Anton and and Steve and Duck and it came out great I'm it was, sure it did Steve was great yeah he's really good the good. only thing I did, did was he played this one lick one time that was so good that I, I put it in each verse.
1: Oh, okay. You can do that. Yeah, oh, sure, you sure can. Oh, yes, you can. So,
0: so it was on uh, uh, my last album. Hmm. It's called Stack's Ability.
1: I have to check it out. It's good. S- so you you were also talking about I mean in your book because I read your book as well. Um, you know, after we visited you, we got you copy your book. Actually, one of the guy Eric Kalb, read it in the in the van when we were <laughs> <laughs> we were on tour. Um, and you know, you talk about a lot of things. You know, you talk about the this diamond ring thing where you wrote that song and you were hoping that it was going to be played by a better group than recorded it because it is a great song. You know,
0: it was a black song.
1: Yeah, and it was recorded by like a kind of a the
0: whitest of white. Very yeah. I hated yeah. it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I hated it. So what, how did you hear You heard it on the radio? Or how did you? No, the
0: publisher played it for you. They played it for you. Your before heart sank. Before it came out.
1: Your heart sank.
0: I couldn't believe how wow. far it was from what I wrote.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And the funny part is uh, the arranger of the white record was uh, Leon Russell.
1: Leon Russell. Wow. Sure. It's a great, it's a great before song. Before he was famous. Yeah, it's a great song. But then you, you, know, you also talk about a lot of interesting things because you have the arc of your career has been really diverse in the true sense of the word. You know, you didn't just get one thing and stick with it and ride it into the sunset. That's true,
0: that's really true. Um I regret that in a way, but I got bored easily. Sure. That's why I did that.
1: Yeah, I I I, and I also, agree with you, you know.
0: Also I have well I mean what one gift from God is to, to to be a good arranger of course you know I, I sat around a lot of great arrangers but
1: well you learn from the best at the best time to learn but, from them. but
0: I mean I know how, I just know how to do it naturally hmm. all the wicks and fills come to me and uh, and, and so I, I consider that like a gift mm-hmm. from God because mm-hmm. I, I didn't really study it I knew how to do except it, except for the Schillinger system. <laughs> that doesn't count.
1: <laughs> so, what about when you eventually you ended up playing with Mike Bloomfield, and you went out to to um, the West Coast? Then you also ended up producing Leonard Skinner. You lived in Nashville, like all of these.
0: I tried to I tried to live as many places as I could. I was sort of curious. Mm and that was so I was really satiating my curiosity Mm. so I lived in New York Atlanta Los Angeles London uh, Austin Mm. When did you live in Austin? Uh, 1980 81
1: Okay so right when it was really starting to happen there
0: and um and then uh, Nashville, mm. I lived there for a long time in Nashville. I lived there for seven years. Mm. Usually the other places like a year or two or mm-hmm. something. So, And I lived in L.A. for a long time. But um, I thought Nashville, the time I lived there, which was... I left in 97 and I think I got there in 89. And per capita they had the best musicians there. Oh, life. it's
1: crazy. It's still that way now. And I mean But I
0: mean, but you don't expect that.
1: Yeah. Because they don't have a, they don't have really have a live music scene there. Well, they do. Well, a little bit of one. I have a lot of friends who live there, and they do amazingly well. But it's not like no.
0: But I mean, when I was there, there was some like local legends that were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Pat McLaughlin mm-hmm. changed my life. The guy has so much talent; it's unbelievable. He should be gigantic, and mm-hmm. he's not. He's like the Van Morrison of Nashville. Mm-hmm. He's unbelievable. I, I just couldn't get enough of going to see him. And I became friends with him. We we wrote a song together, which is a great song. Which song? It's you wouldn't know it. Oh. Okay. It's never been out. Got gotcha, you. Got gotcha. you. And uh, uh, I had a. Uh, I had a great idea for a song when I had moved here and I called him and I said uh, I sort of I would love it if you would come up here I'll put you up and uh, have a great title I told mm-hmm. him the title and what the song was about and he came up he wouldn't stay here he got a hotel room and uh, in two days, first day we wrote a song, second day we recorded it, I used to have a studio downstairs. I
1: remember, yeah.
0: And uh, and we rec- you know, so we wrote it and the next day we recorded it. And between wow. the two of us we played everything. And that was it. And it, it's still sitting around. I'm going to put it on my mm. box set.
1: So it's really good. Though. Oh, it's awesome.
0: And so so that was one of the things about living there. Mm. I, I didn't get called for many sessions.
1: It's unusual because I think what I've heard about Nashville then and today is that, yeah, there are lots and lots of pickers there.
0: There was, a, there was a keyboard player though. I mean, the top keyboard player there was unbelievable. Mm. His name was Matt Rawlings.
1: I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, though. You know, if you go there and you you are a really, um, you know, you're a really capable musician, but you do something special, people will call you at, like you've said, like because you do something special, and they they want to have your flavor. It's the only on guy the that stuff.
0: hired me was uh, uh, I forget his name now. But he had that, uh, that girl, Trish, I can't remember her name.
1: Man, I wouldn't know. I'm I not think the modern ma- country th- guy. I,
0: I, I think she's married to that, that other guy that was huge, to Garth Brooks. Oh, Garth Brooks, Brooks She's right. married to Garth Brooks. Oh, man,
1: I, wouldn't, I don't even really know his music. I hate to say.
0: So he hired me. I played on her first album. And then he hired me for other stuff Mm. with her. So I just played with her a lot. Yeah. And that was great. Mm. And then they did... uh, It's pretty funny, man. I have a a friend of mine that I've known since the beginning named Bill Simzik. Mm. He produced uh, uh, The James Gang, B.B. King, Mm. and... A lot of the Eagles records, and uh, Joe Walsh. Sure. Uh, and he's considered one of the greatest producers of all time. But we started out together. In Queens. No, in uh, in, in New York City. In New York, he was he was uh, 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 an engineer in the demo studios I used to work in. He did like my songwriting demos, you know, when wow. I was doing that. I've known him since then, and he says that that uh, I am the person he's known the longest in the music business. Wow!
1: So you guys were teenagers, weren't you? You knew he Sort of. One. He had just gotten
0: out of the uh, armed services. Oh man! I think he was from uh, North Carolina originally, mm-hmm. and um, so so he came after the Eagles. He took all his money and, and got a, a.
1: So, which evil Stuff did he produce? My son loves that record. He plays, we have a greatest hits album vinyl he d- that he likes to he
0: play. He did uh, uh, Hotel California. Oh my
1: God, I can't listen to that song. Uh,
0: no, <laughs> I, mean, time in my no I mean
1: the whole album. The whole record, fine. Wow. And
0: the, the one, and maybe two before that.
1: Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, those records sound incredible. I mean, Well, he
0: was, he was an engineer.
1: Yeah, I mean, they sound incredible.
0: He was a really good engineer. Yeah. He also did uh, uh, Jay Giles' band, mm. all their records.
1: Mm-hmm. Those are great sounding records. Back in yeah, the day. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff, mm. Bill. And uh, so he came down, he was uh, sort of in the same thing I was in. He, was, he wasn't doing much. I didn't do much when I lived in Nashville, I just sort of, I, I, I like retired there because I wanted to do that. I, I, I don't care for modern country music, mm-hmm. so I knew that I, I wouldn't get involved yeah, yeah. there.
1: <laughs> you went to the place you knew you were going to work the least.
0: Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I wanted to live there, mm-hmm. and, I, and I knew some people there, and it was a great place to live.
1: It is a great place no, to I live. No, I mean in that time period. Yeah, even now it is. I know people who, who live down there. Visit it, was a lot. A gr-
0: it was a great place to live. I had a really good time. I met some wonderful people. And uh, uh, Matt Rawlings was an unbelievable player. I had to play a few sessions with him where he played piano and I played organ. And it was terrifying. <laughs> He's okay, so good. Awesome. There's a track by Lyle Lovett. Called, she's already made up her mind. He plays piano on that. That's like a crash course for anybody who wants to hear magnificent Adelaide piano mm. playing on a record. Unbelievable.
1: Mm. Oh, that's And and
0: I and I I think I heard that before I went to Nashville. So you sought him out when you went down there. And when I met him, I said, boy, I love your playing on that Mm. track. But I had a a wonderful time living there. It was really nice. I had a nice house, too. Mm.
1: You were telling me at one point you were in London. I guess that's when you lived in London. and You were doing some record with George Harrison or something. Yeah, I I can't remember the story.
0: Well, he hired me to play on his album. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Uh, I think he asked Dylan about me, mm. and Dylan gave me high marks. <laughs> so, so he hired me. And I went and I did that, and he was great. Oh, it was great to work amazing. with him. He was a really nice guy. When I when I moved back to L.A. I was in London, then I moved to Austin, then I went back to L.A. Mm. When I was back in L.A., one night my doorbell rang about 11 o'clock at night, which was unusual. I went, who the fuck is this? I said, ah, there's a beetle at my door. <laughs> and he didn't know where I lived. He, he specifically found out where I lived and wow. came over.
1: Oh, that's so cool.
0: Which was the nicest that's thing. That's awesome, yeah. The nicest thing. And uh, we had a great time. Next day, I took them to the music stores, but we went in like a half hour after they closed.
1: You probably would have had to, right?
0: Well, well I thought that was a good idea. Yeah, for so sure. So I, I knew all the guys that owned the stores, so I said, so... I said, if you stay open, but not for anybody else, I said, I'll bring George Harrison in tomorrow night. And he bought some stuff. It was good.
1: Yeah. I love his playing. I love his records, too. He was a great guy. Yeah. Really, really. really great
0: guy. That was just so nice. Uh, And so I I said, when he came in the house, I said, how'd you get here? He said, said, well, they they had a... uh, uh, they asked me if, if they could use my song for a car commercial. And they gave me a, a, a car in London, a car in Los Angeles, and a car in uh, uh, Hawaii. Wow. I said to... He said, you know, it's just, you know, it's one of my songs, and they go, cha la 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 buy this fucking car. <laughs> so about a year later, I'm watching TV, and as a car commercial, it goes, Something in the way she moves. Oh, really? Yeah, that and was went, it. I went, Cha-la-la-la-la, buy this fucking car. <laughs> there it is.
1: Man, what, now you got to a point where you ended up being, were you
0: like president of A&R? Never. I was uh, uh, I was head. You were a producer. I was, no, I was head of West Coast A&R for Polygram. For Polygram. And, what year was that, around uh, 83, 84, 85, somewhere
1: Mm. in there. But in the in the early 70s, weren't you a house producer? At Columbia. That's what I meant to say. Yes, you were a house producer at Columbia, and you produced a lot of cool records. I remember you were telling me about the... Because we were talking about Earl Palmer, I think, because he had just passed at that point. You said, oh, I have a record with Earl Palmer. And you're explaining how just the way that the thing worked, you, you had all the funds you needed to make these really epic, produced records of your own and hire the people that to, to play on them you know so how long did you do that for the my that? whole life well no not that that I'm talking about specifically um, CBS yeah uh, 68 to
0: 72
1: and what were the records that you produced
0: well mostly my own
1: mmm
0: but I produced a, a Sweet Linda Divine mm-hmm. Don Ellis a, a, a really great group called Appaloosa and they they came to my office they like dodged security and came to my office and asked if they could audition for me so I was very impressed that they got to my office without being stopped and uh, I said well, let me get on the phone see if I can get a studio and yeah. they said No, we can just play in your office. I said, really? He said, I said, what's the instrumentation? He said, acoustic guitar, uh, uh, electric bass, we'll need to plug in just one little amp, and uh, 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 cello and viola. So I said, you could play in my office. Come on in. Wow. And they were unbelievable. Unbelievable! Great charts. Mm. I've never heard of them. I, no, no, I they—they—they they, 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 uh, uh, they, they never made it. Mm. Mm. We made a great album, and it was six months too early. Six months later, James Taylor, who was doing sort of basically the same thing, came out and got it. Yeah, so if, much of it if, is if about I had that. Been, yeah. If I had been. Six months late with it, it would have been a gigantic. Right record. time. It's got to be. I mean, right I still time. have it, and I play it for people, and they go, "That is unbelievable." No, i It was to it. unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you can't get it anywhere. Yeah. has yeah. Gone. Yeah. But that was a great record. What else did I do? And then my so you know my solo albums mm-hmm. and the Bloomfield record. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a record with Suggy Otis. Yes, that's what we were talking
1: about. Because I have a weird connection with his brother, Johnny Otis Jr. Because when I lived in Switzerland and I was a street musician, we played a lot of the same gigs. Well, he played on the street during the day, and then you played gigs at night, which you got. And he lived there at the time, you know. Um, but what was the record
0: you did with Sugi Otis? It was called Cooper Session. It was a follow-up to Super. Okay, okay. And it was just, uh, uh, well, I heard Shuggy on a record, and he was about fourteen years mm-hmm. old when I heard him on the record. So I was told that if I wanted to use him on a record, that I had to go ask Johnny's permission. Mm-hmm. So I had it set up, and I went to Johnny's house. Uh, Johnny Senior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we sat around and talked about it. And he let me do it, the, the provisions were that I fly on the plane with him from uh, uh, San Francisco to uh, New York where I mm-hmm. lived at the time, and that I fly back with him, uh-huh. and that he'd not stay in a hotel, he'd stay at my apartment. What a good
1: dad, that was a good dad.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, he was 15. Yeah by that time and so we did all that and he was very quiet he was unbelievably talented mm-hmm. the, the I play those records the, play, the playing on well the record I heard him on was called Cold Shot and mm-hmm. that was a Johnny Otis album I know that record and and I said wow so I said I want to make a record with him so uh, uh, he didn't sing. I s- did because the records I have him on, he sings. Well, he didn't sing on this one. Uh-huh. So I sang, and, and he played, and we did a lot of instrumentals, just jams. But we did some song songs, too. Mm. And he played magnificently. Just sitting in the chair, burning, mm-hmm. burning. Burning. I mean, you know, the guys that I hired were going <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it's very good. I think we did that record in like three or four days. Mm. I'm
1: gonna have to get that one.
0: It's really good. His playing is really good on it.
1: Oh, that's cool. I mean, the records I know of him are the ones that came out uh, his his solo. His solo albums, albums, after that, exactly. Well, yeah. he was
0: able to get a deal because of that record. Really? Yeah.
1: Because I just know the, so his solo records that they're good records. I think Wilton Felder is on on one of them and like those guys from that mm-hmm. thing. Great, fantastic stuff. Yeah. But he was,
0: well, I don't want to say another thing. <laughs>
1: go ahead and say it. I'll push pretty soon. I think the thing about finding a really good drummer is you it, it's, a, it's a leap of faith. You have to give them everything because they're really driving the bus. So you really have to have a lot of faith in them. And if you don't trust them implicitly, it'll put a chill in the music. And Fred Wesley told me a story once about being on the road with James Brown. And he said he couldn't even remember the guy's name, but they played with this drummer who was so good. But he had his own, really had his own style and really had his own feel. Um, And James Brown ended up firing him. Because he said, I understand that. Yeah, because he said, I can't put my career in that guy's hands because he would have too much power. If I went with that guy, he would have much too much power over me, and I wouldn't be able to drive the bus the way that I want to drive it. Well, I'll you
0: tell know? you, I'll tell you what happened. I had a drummer, and we were making a record here, <clears throat> and and he was playing, uh, and we cutting you know the record yeah what I what I would do is I would rehearse the band till they knew everything perfectly Mm -hmm. so there was hardly any reading involved right and then we'd go in and we cut the whole album in two days because we knew everything yeah
1: that's the way it's supposed to be and
0: then I'd do all the overdubs here at the house Mm hmm but but I'd cut it in the real studio so we're doing this tune I'm saying you you're playing it too fast," he says. "That's the tempo it should be at." I said, "No, no, no, no," <laughs> and I played him the demo, which was the tempo I wanted to be. And it was very important to me because it was a tune that I had co-written with Jerry Goffin,
1: mm.
0: which I only got to do twice in my mm. life. Mm-hmm. So, but it was important to me. It was a really good song, and he would not play it at my tempo. Mm. He played it at the fast tempo,
1: yeah, and it, and it ruined it. That's not, yeah. I mean, the thing about that, the real good drummers, they know because they're listening, especially no, no, in no, 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 They're no. listening to the singer, and they know what the words are supposed to sound like and how they're rhythmically. It's working. not
0: even that. It's it doesn't even come to that. It says, I'm the arranger, right? I'm the artist, and I'm the producer, right? You cannot tell me what tempo you're going to play at. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And you're getting paid. What was that story you told about the drummer, the guy who was a producer,
1: who was also, he played drums, and and he was one of those very famous rock sessions. He decided that he wanted to play the drums on the session. You were telling us about it. Doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, yeah. It was like a producer, some session, big rock Session from back in the day, and and um, it was a great drummer that was on the session. But he decided he wanted to play the drums on the session. You were oh aghast. Yeah, yeah 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 you were aghast at that. What was that? That story? was the
0: Rolling Stones.
1: The Rolling Stones. Oh well, yeah, I guess that is a big rock set he, band. He, he
0: sort of pushed Charlie Watts off the drums.
1: Wow, man! I thought
0: that was he was the producer. Wow, and it was it was not a particularly great drummer. Mm. But he ended up playing the drums on uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want. Oh, that's that, right, 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 wow. But he did it, I thought he did it in a way, I mean, he wanted to do that. He wanted to play the drums, and he intimidated Charlie off the drums.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing. So
0: so what happened was, he had a lick he wanted Charlie to play and he was trying to explain it to Charlie. Uh-huh. And Charlie said, he said, well, why don't you sit down and play it for me? Right. So he played it. And meanwhile, you know, the band is sort of playing too. And Charlie said, why don't you just play the drums? Wow. The, not angrily. Sure,
1: sure. Jimmy, yeah, mean, what has he got to prove? He's like quite a few million selling, right? Well, he
0: doesn't think like that, though. Right. He says, you know, play. And, and the guy, you know, if it was me, I would have said, "No fucking way."
1: Right. Yeah, this you know, is, I would have felt very. I mean, I would have felt very uncomfortable.
0: I had I had similar things to that with Skinner.
1: Oh yeah, that's the thing I wanted to ask you about with Leonard Skinner. I remember you. you please talk about them and then I have a question to ask you specifically about about that. The
0: keyboard player came from a classical background.
1: And that's the story about him. That whole intro to that Freebird was him just messing around, right? Wasn't that...
0: Yeah, that's all him. Yeah. But but what happened was, I had a band, and now I'm speaking as a a knowledgeable arranger. Mm -hmm. I had a band with three guitar players. Mm. Awful. (laughs) That's the worst thing I could...
1: I've been in bands with three guitar players. No,
0: but they were they had respect for each other yeah yeah no
1: i i just say and that
0: they and they and, the and, and those guys did it good yeah yeah but there was no room for two-handed piano no in in some of those arrangements that they had concocted mm. so i did things like once i tied his left hand to the bench <laughs> And uh, uh, and then I would I would play organ sometimes to to try and curta- curtail his playing. He was a very good player, mm. so it was difficult. But he but uh, he was was not the uh, the brightest guy in the world. Mm. <laughs> so so I mean I try as I they were not. They were the furthest thing from book read musicians. Mm-hmm. They were the antithesis mm-hmm. of book read musicians. You so, were telling
1: me about the one thing I remember is you were telling them, well, you know, this might have a bar of five four in it, and they're saying, "What?
0: What is that? What do you mean? How can you have more than four beats in a bar?" That's, exactly.
1: I love that, and they're kind of right. I mean, I hate to say no, that I mean, but they're so, right.
0: So I mean, so so they had a situation where the the he counted off the song. One, two, three, And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, why are you doing that? Why aren't you going one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. He said, it works out when we get to the next part. As Ed King, the guitar player, said this. And I said, Well, there must be an incomplete bar in there. That's why it works out. It's probably either a, a, a 3 4 or a 5 4 bar. So I said, Go ahead, play it again. And the drum fill that separates the two sections is 5 4. Mm-hmm. That's what it is.
1: Wow. I love so how I've, people come up with that. So so it sent, feels natural, you know? So I
0: sent that to, and this was the drummer's first time recording with the band. He had never recorded with the band. Mm-hmm. That guy, mm-hmm. he became famous.
1: When you were down there, and you did, did you ever have any um, interaction with, you know, those guys, uh, you know, the Swampers, you know? Hawkins, none, none whatsoever. Because you were farther away. You weren't in that Muscle Shoals area. You were in Nashville.
0: No, the only connection I had with Muscle Shoals was uh, one of the guys from there moved to Nashville. Uh, uh, Dan Penn.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and we became very good friends and we wrote a lot of songs together. Great
1: songwriter.
0: We wrote a lot of songs yeah. together when I lived in Nashville. That's
1: fantastic.
0: And we were really good friends. Mm. Matter of fact, I, I did an interview, a really long interview with him for Goldmine Magazine. Gotcha, yeah. At, at that time. And it was really good.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, I'm your puppet. That's him, right? Yeah. Well, well I'm, and, um, among many others. Yeah.
0: But, yeah. But he, but he and I got along really well. Oh, that's great. I have great stories about him. Give me one. Uh. I was writing a song one day myself and I got two verses and I hit the wall on the chorus. I could not write a chorus. Mm -hmm. The verses are really good. So I didn't like to stop there because I would forget it. Mm -hmm. I was too lazy to record it. And so I wanted to get someone else over to the house that i trusted that could help me write the chorus Mm -hmm. so i called him up it was the first one i thought of because it was like the song was in his milieu territory yeah so i called him up and i said uh i got two great verses here i said and i just hit the fucking wall on the chorus i was hoping you could help me he says Well, why don't you read me them verses you got there? So I read him the verses. He says, those are good. He (laughs) says, "Uh, uh, why don't I come over there tonight about 9 o'clock? I said, it's only like 12.30. He said, well, I got to go to welding class today. Welding class? He worked on cars. That's
1: fantastic.
0: He worked on cars like on his front lawn mm-hmm. in Nashville. Classic. So so he said, Well, I got welding class today. there's really no comeback for that. No,
1: there there isn't. There isn't that So much. I said,
0: Okay, I'll see you in nine. Oh my god. And I said and I still stayed with it. I played it over and over till I wouldn't forget it. Oh man. You know I- So then he then he came over at nine o'clock, he said. Yeah, I've been thinking about that song all day. He said, I think I got a good title for it. He told me the title. It was good. We sat down, we wrote the chorus in about 45 minutes. He looked at me and he said, you know, you've done real good with them first two verses. He said, I, I think you could probably write another two verses. He said, I think my job is done here. <laughs> and besides, my excision PM is kicking in. <laughs>
1: that's awesome man well you t- uh, that, that's we good. made
0: t- we made some great demos together too of, of stuff you know where uh, he would sing mm. and also be- before I met him I cut one of his tunes on one of my albums That's mm. really good well, guy's-
1: I mean, there's a movie out now I don't know if you've seen it
0: Oh, it's, it's a lot of lies in that movie. Is that
1: right? Really? Like like which? Uh, it was a beautifully made movie. What 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 are the lies in that movie? All, I
0: all the Leonard and Skinner stuff is like lies. lies really, lies, really lies, lies, really lies.
1: like which which aspect? And
0: I thought it was disrespectful that it didn't even mention my name.
1: Okay, so talk and to took that. Took
0: credit for everything.
1: Yeah, talk to that. Talk to that.
0: Well, I mean, I. I you know, I don't care to discuss well, the dirty that. laundry in, yeah, 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 in public. But, but I, I, uh, I was very surprised at his behavior in that movie. Who is that? Whoever the guy was, Jimmy something.
1: Oh, the guy who said he produced uh, the guitar player. He was a guitar yeah. player, yeah, yeah Jimmy. Yeah, great guitar player, Jimmy yeah.
0: Jones. It's like so many untruths in that movie mm. <clears throat> I was actually amazed mm. because he's done you know great things in his life that sure, guy sure sure and it seemed like a great guy every time I met him and everything but,
1: but that's but, not the story the story is different than that
0: well yeah he took credit for everything mm. and, and some of these things didn't exist when you know they went there first right they they found them like I think maybe two years before I found them, mm. and and they uh, and they cut an album with them and they couldn't sell it anywhere because they weren't ready yet. Right. When I heard them, they were ready. Yeah. And I didn't. When was that? What year was that? Seventy uh, two. Uh, so, but, were did you do like Freebird? I did their their first three albums. Their first three
1: albums. Right.
0: Although they had cut an album. Right, it there,
1: but it was not red, that, that's and, and right.
0: it, But it, was, right. it wasn't very good.
1: Right, but you ended up producing Free Bird, Sweet Home yeah. Alabama, yeah. all but, of that but stuff. But what I'm
0: saying is, yeah. uh, <laughs> the Sweet Home Alabama didn't exist till I signed them.
1: Yeah, but they're saying that it, it did.
0: Well, he said, he was talking about Free Bird, but mm. Free Bird wasn't what it was, in other words, they didn't have that fast part mm-hmm. on it when right, he, they worked right. with him. It was
1: just the the ballad. And
0: ballad. he said, "Well, you know, and the thing I said, well, you know, I wanted to put out like a nine minute si- single, but it wasn't nine minutes long." It, then. At that
1: point, it wasn't. No, yeah, it didn't yeah, even yeah, have yeah, that part in yeah, it. Yeah, tell me about that recording. That what what was that like? Like, I mean, it's it's obviously an incredibly iconic song, and
0: we made that album in in two weeks because they were. They were they were ready
1: mm.
0: I just I, I made suggestions and they turned most of them down and, <laughs> and, and we, we fought over where we, did you record that at a great studio called studio one in Doraville Georgia okay Then moved to Atlanta mm-hmm. mostly because of that studio I like mm. that studio and uh, and I, and uh, what before Before I lived there I was there working at that studio producing somebody from uh, out of town I I didn't live there and the band that I was producing didn't live there Mm. and we came there and we recorded at the studio because I liked that studio and my friends owned the studio Atlanta Rhythm Section yeah of course I was very good friends with them I knew them before they were the Atlanta Rhythm Section so so I asked if I could come in and cut an album there, and and I didn't, I liked the experience so much, I never went home. I mean, literally, I had my mm-hmm. roadies pack up my apartment in New York, <laughs> and... Just take it down, send down there everything for to, Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, so I never left there once I, I got there. And <clears throat> so we would record every day from 12 to 8, mm. And then we go out to this club every night. And they had uh, a band uh, a band that played there for, uh, they were closed on Mondays. Mm. The band would play there for six nights, mm. whoever was booked. That's the way it used to be. Yeah, of thing, course, actually. of course, yeah. But people yeah. forget
1: that. Oh, I do some of those still. Not as many as I'd like, but...
0: No, but I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, so the first week we were there, we were only there for two weeks. So the first week the band was... But the women were great <laughs> in the club, so it didn't matter. Right. So <clears throat> then, uh, second week, they came in, and I went, "Whoa, this is really good." And I, but I got to. So hear Leonard him.
1: Skinner was playing for a week at, this, at yeah. this club, right?
0: So I got to hear him, you know, two sets a night for uh, six days. Mm. So by the end of the thing. Uh, Uh, One night I went, uh, I asked if I could sit in and they didn't have a keyboard, didn't have a keyboard player then. So uh, that's the other thing. How could they have done uh, that Freebird thing?
1: If they didn't have a keyboard player, Well, they could have used the Shells guy. uh, Yeah.
0: But I don't think they did. And uh, uh, so uh, I said, well, I'll play guitar. I said, I could, I could stand up with you. I said, okay. So they brought me up, and uh, and I, uh, they had an extra guitar. So I said, what are we doing? He said, Mean Woman Blues and C Sharp. And I cracked up. Why C Sharp? So that if you didn't know how to play the guitar, Oh, oh, you weren't going to were be how to play it. it. Oh, okay, I dig it. See, I would, I would just think, I well, got that. And that was yeah. like... The punchline to a joke. When right. He, when he right. said that to me, I totally understood that, it's and like, I laughed.
1: That's hilarious. That I mean, said,
0: I said, don't worry, I can play it. And see yeah, stuff. yeah.
1: I mean, where I come from, you better be able to play everything in every key. Blah 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 blah. So. We would just be like, "Why would you want to play in that key?"
0: (laughs) I mean, you can play in that key, but why would would you want to? Well, for that reason. For that reason, absolutely. That was their safeguard when people wanted to sit in.
1: Right, right. Oh, that's awesome.
0: That's very
1: good. (laughs) So then, you and how did you end up becoming their producer?
0: I, uh, I offered them a deal Mm. during that. You know, the the end of the end of that week. Yeah. And they had a manager, and the manager was there. And it took about three months of back and forth between the lawyers and everything. Of course. Yeah. And then they did it. By that time, I had heard other bands there, and I started my own label called Sounds of the South. And I signed another band, and and that's what I did. Mm. And I lived there in Atlanta. Yeah.
1: And so those records, I mean, obviously those are some of the you just selling records of all time, right?
0: I wouldn't know. I don't get yeah, paid for
1: them. You don't get paid for them because what what the same thing that happens to you happened, I guess that happened. Everyone happened to you as well. Just all, uh, alas. Can you before we ring off? I mean, I there's you know I'm in your house and you have all these incredible photos here. Um, you know, there's one in, of you with Al Green. And uh, this one with you and Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, I mean, you know, obviously Jimi Hendrix is is I got a box of like. photos. You got a box of them, huh? Well, wow.
0: Actually, it's a drawer. A,
1: a drawer. Print. Wow, man. I
0: got a lot of photos. Yeah. Back in the day, the photographers used to give you prints. Mm. Now, that's Just as long, a courtesy. That's long, long gone. Long gone, yeah. But I have all those prints that the photographers gave me. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I kept them and now I have them in one big draw. Oh, that's fantastic. <clears throat> so, we could do that sometime. Yeah, I'd love to see
1: that. So you, but can you explain to me like your interaction with someone like Jimi Hendrix or because you guys were all in the same cultural experience at that time and I mean I know from my mom. Well, and that, other.
0: not so much with him. Mm. First of all, he was from Seattle.
1: Right, and he was in
0: England. And and also he was
1: uh, uh, in the armed services. Sure, sure, yeah. You know, so
0: I didn't have very much in common of with him at not, all. Of course that
1: makes a lot of sense, yeah.
0: So, so uh, uh, but...
1: Uh, you and Bob Dylan and uh, Mike Bloomfield, that was...
0: That was three Jews in a box. Right, right.
1: <laughs> and I have to tell you, my mom's impression of bob dylan because my mom and my father who you may know tangentially they're older than you are uh they were in that kind of uh greenwich village folk scene uh, you know they tr- hanging out with mississippi john hurt and reverend gary davis and dave van Ronk was my father's like trotsky a running partner you know that whole thing and so Bob Dylan was a little bit on that scene and I and I asked my mom you know well, what what you know what do you think about him? you know he goes oh those that guy was a what do you, he said something like a, uh, well we her, her opinion was like well we just never thought he was good because he couldn't play authentically like he couldn't play the real shit supposedly you know what I mean we didn't care that he wrote these songs it doesn't matter to us what we cared about was like how come he can't play like Mississippi John Hurt, you know, because that's what they were all going for, you know. So the the lens through which I view that music is I think probably different than most people my age do, because I came up listening to the records that she thought were the good records, which were mississippi john Hurt, reverend gary davis lead belly robert johnson i mean i go on and on and on so when eventually i came to the music that was later it it didn't have the impact on me that it had on most of people my age who heard that music first or second or third you know
0: i didn't get doing at first because of the voice Mm -hmm. i went whoa So, uh, uh, Paul Simon and I kind of grew up together. Oh, I didn't know that either. He lived near me. Oh, what the hell? And we met when I was in the Royal Teens. Because when when we had short shorts out, him and uh, Garfunkel had a record out under another name called Hey Schoolgirl," that Mm -hmm. was a big hit. So we played gigs together, and that's how we met. Mm. And then we realized we were all from Queens, and we became friends. So, uh, Paul Simon's dad was a a band leader, Lou Simon, Mm. and he had a a big band, and they played uh, uh, weddings and debutante parties Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, one time Paul called me up and he said, uh, I got a gig for you. This is about sixty-two. Mm. And I said, "What's up?" He said, "Well, I'm I'm playing a gig with my dad's band." I <laughs> said, "And every <clears throat> every forty-five minutes, I get up and I play two Twist songs." He said, "So I wanted you to play lead guitar." And and you know, and we'll do you know two Twist songs, and we'll probably have to do six songs all night I said what do we do the other time he says "Uh, sit up on the bandstand with our volume controls off and play (laughs) I said that's pretty funny
1: but he meant it
0: I said I want to do it just to for the experience of doing that and I think it was like uh, uh, 75 bucks
1: wow that's good it was really good yeah
0: so I took it and, and we did a that gig today pays fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it probably did play fifty bucks then.
1: Then it pays thirty today. Oh man, that's incredible.
0: Well, when we played with my first band, and we played like, uh, you know, dances at uh, uh, school and at uh, uh, the temples and the churches, mm-hmm. we made ten bucks a guy. It was forty bucks mm-hmm. for four guys. That was how I started.
1: That's how you make it, you know. That's how everyone starts. Same way. Unfortunately, it's how most of us end up, too. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for your time, man. appreciate it, as always.
0: Is it... Um, uh, if it doesn't cause much trouble, there's, like, maybe two or three things I want to play you that we were talking about. I'd love to, yeah. And and then uh, and I can... Uh, and while... I'm playing you that I can stick you in the picture drawer.
1: Okay, oh, that sounds great. Okay. That sounds excellent.